Leadership Show with Andy Peck. Welcome to the show that helps you use your influence to further God's work. I'm going to start by defining a word. What word is this a definition for? Able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. Able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. Well, that's a definition of the word resilient. And it's a great characteristic for any leader to have. And especially in the last few years, as COVID-19 has provided a great challenge to church leaders throughout the world. I'm joined today by a pastor who's written a book for other pastors entitled The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. His name is Glenn Packiam, and although based in the USA, actually has a PhD from Durham University in the UK. He's associate pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs and lead pastor of one of its eight congregations, New Life Downtown. The book came when the research group Barna asked him to write a book reflecting on their research into what pastors were thinking about their work. This is not a how-to book or a mandate for change, but in his words, an opportunity to think out loud together. So I'm looking forward to chatting with Glenn and picking his brains on what he's been learning about resilience in these days. So welcome, Glenn, to The Leadership Show. Thank you, Andy. So good to be with you today. Um, So I've shared a few words, summary in my introduction, but perhaps you could start with sharing in your own outlook of the project you were engaged with when you wrote this book. Well, first of all, I love the way you uh, began by giving us that definition of resilience. I think of a story that uh, the former chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, uh, told about going to the doctor once and the doctor said, you know, putting him on this treadmill and and hooking him up with all these sensors. And he said, oh, are you going to test to see how fast I can run? He said, no, that's not what I'm testing. And then he said, well, are you going to test to see how, you know, how far I can run? He said, no, that's not what I'm testing. And when he finished the whole thing, the doctor's still measuring everything. And he said, doc, what were you testing? And he said, I was testing to see how quickly your heart and your body recover from conditions of stress and duress. And that is to me, the picture of resilience and resilience is a marker of health because it's an indication of how, how we do recalibrate and recover. But I think for Christians, it's important to recognize that resilience is not something we sort of do on our own. It's a work of grace. Uh, It's a, it's a work of the spirit in us. But like all uh, things that the Spirit does in us and with us, He does it in participation with us. So we're meant to sort of join Him in, in cultivating resilience. So Barna approached me about two years ago, the president of Barna, David Kinneman, and he said, would you like to work on a project with us about challenges facing pastors in a changing world? Now, this was pre-pandemic, Andy. So I, I nervously said yes. And then had I known that a global pandemic was going to be follow right on the heels of that, I might have said no. Um, but actually, Actually, it made us recognize the the importance and perhaps even the urgency for this work. So I was given the opportunity to comb through all of their existing data and then work with their team to actually design new uh, research questions for pastors, which went out in October of 2020. We even got some questions into the general population in the North American context. And, uh, and then I did focus groups with pastors in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., three different focus groups to talk uh, uh, to these pastors about these particular challenges. So, Glenn, the book starts by talking about the rapid changes in culture in society, which, of course, yeah. is exacerbated by, by COVID. Although that this is based in the United States, this is going to resonate mostly wherever we're listening from, especially mm-hmm. in the U.K., 
Uh, What changes would you highlight have been the most significant for pastors today? You know, I think for the changing landscape, and I do think churches in the UK and leaders in the UK, it's almost as if you are the future for where the the North American uh, context is headed. Um, And so I've I've described it. You remember a few years ago, there was an earthquake uh, that created a tsunami that then, you know, created this mess in, in Southeast Asia. And, and tragic loss of life and all that. In a way, the, that earthquake is like the shift of tectonic plates. And I, I think of that shift as the shift between Christianity and culture. And again, for, for leaders in the UK, you will have noticed those shifts for decades now, where the disassociation or the disconnection between faith and the wider context of the nation itself or culture itself. But then that shift has caused a surge. And the surge is of other ways to make sense of life, to make meaning of the world. As human beings, Andy, we've got to find ways to make meaning, to make sense of the purpose for our existence. And I think what the pandemic kind of accelerated or maybe revealed was the extent to which there's all these alternate uh, meaning-making systems, things like uh, where, where people say, well, I can actually mix and match my religion, or I can mix and match my, my belief systems. And so what we're left with is just like there was that messy aftermath of, of tragedy and, 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 and debris uh, after the tsunami. There is for us, even in the midst of this pandemic, we're recognizing the debris of a, of a cultural, of these tides hitting the shore, as it were. And so we, we talk to people, and it's hard to make generalizations. Some people have sympathies toward God or Christianity, maybe nostalgia. They miss certain things about it at Christmas time or whatever. But when you press them about their belief system, they really don't want uh, faith informing how they spend their money or how they go about their relationships or friendships or things like that. So pastoral work is challenging because we're not starting from the same um, starting block, as it were. We're, we're. Everybody's not on the same ground floor. We're at different levels and, and confused about it. And whereas a previous generation would respect the pastor and you did some yeah. survey work, which looked at how people felt about pastors in general and whether they were wise and informed, whereas a yeah. previous generation, it would be a high status role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These days, pastors have got to fight for being credible <laughs> at all. Well, I don't know if there's a fight for it, but it, but it certainly is a losing battle. Uh, uh, I know in the in the U.S., um, only four percent of non-Christians said that they yes, definitely consider a pastor to be a trustworthy source of wisdom. That only four percent. Now, among Christians, that only rises to thirty-one percent. Um, and then if you if you add in, you know, the people who said, okay, yes, somewhat. That for Christians, that's only 71%. I mean, Andy, I think about that as a pastor. That means about 30%, about a third of our people are sitting out there in a Sunday, crossing their arms and listening to me and thinking, mm, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and I, I wonder if that sort of skepticism, you know, translates over here as well. I suspect it does. If not, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Of course, we need to define what a pastor uh, is and does. Uh, I was intrigued by your connection with Eugene Peterson, which was mentioned in the book, who, of course, brought a particular perspective to yeah. that question. Uh, I'm guessing we need to know exactly what we are doing and not doing when yeah. we're pastoring, if we're to manage ourselves going forward. It's very true, Andy. And there have been so many expectations sort of put on from the outside of a pastor. Uh, I mean, I, I just think even of the last few decades, 
there was a big movement several decades ago where pastors have to be expert counselors. And I do think it's helpful to be familiar with some of those things, but but many pastors are not trained with that sort of technical expertise. And then on top of that, pastors were sort of expected to be CEO entrepreneurs, which again, some have the giftings that lean toward that way, um, but that's a challenging dynamic of institutional or organizational leadership skills. And then in, lately in the last couple of years, we're supposed to be social commentators or activists where we're supposed to be up on all the, the nuances of different uh, um, issues or agendas in our community. And we're supposed to know how to speak to the complexity of that. Well, those are those are undoable expectations. They're unrealistic expectations. I, I love how Peterson talks about the pastor as a person who pays attention and calls attention to what God is doing and paying attention. That's local, that's personal, that's deep work, you know, and, and many, many times the pastor, maybe because they're discouraged, maybe because they're disillusioned have wanted to create a kind of distance between them and their people. And so they, they do their work on Sundays and then they, they disappear but, but if we're going to pay attention to God at work, the pastor really has to be uh, embedded in the life of a particular parish or community. And then you've got to call attention to it. And what I love about this, Andy, is the pastor's job is not to do the work for the people, but to call the people to join the work. And this is where that, that line between clergy and laity kind of starts to blur here. And we say, actually, God is at work in his world, whether that's in the marketplace or in the church or wherever that might be. And our job is to, is to discern it and then to, to join him in it. And a, a pastor sort of kind of helps lead the way in both of those things. Glenn, it's perhaps no surprise that your research found that Many pastors have considered quitting. Uh, obviously, COVID has brought its own pressures, yeah. but that's been the case, uh, uh, you know, for many years. Uh, back in the two thousand, the Evangelical Alliance in the UK, together with a charity I used to work with, CWR, did some survey work. Fifty percent had considered quitting in the previous two years in that survey. So, what you're wow. finding in the states, twenty twenty two, is not dissimilar. Um, and in, in those days, pastoral issues were the high thing. So it was the inability to, to care and to face some of the challenges in the church that were a burden. What were the yeah. kind of issues that are cons- mean, meaning that pastors are considering quitting in the U.S.? So when I when I asked the pastors in my focus group about this and, and the stats in the U.S. were in January of 2021, it was 29 percent of pastors said they had seriously considered quitting. And then in October of 2021, that number rose to 38 percent. So, right. you know, for you to say, yeah, in the U.K. 20 years ago, it was 50 percent. I mean, that, again, b- bears out my my sort of hypothesis here that the U.K., you're a couple decades or so ahead of where, where we're, we're going in the U.S. But when I spoke to pastors in my focus groups, both, you know, in the U.K. and the U.S. and even Canada, uh, the stories that they were saying was just the the unusually divisive moment. You know, the church has been through crises before, even in recent times. I mean, you think about uh, 9-11 or you think about moments, you, you know, um, even go, if you go farther back, say, during World War II or whatever, you find these moments where there's a crisis, but it kind of rallies people together. And so they become uh, they, they become opportunities for solidarity. Um, our own church, our own local church in Colorado, uh, 15, 16 years ago, 
uh, what, there was a scandal of the founding senior pastor, pretty public moral failure. Uh, and then 13 months after that, there was a shooting that took place on our campus where a, a gunman came on and opened fire. So tragedy upon tragedy. But those crises, those were moments where the church kind of rallied together and said, well, let's pray together. Let's worship together. Let's encourage. What's been unique? I don't know, unique. What's been different about the pandemic is that actually churches have have themselves split about all the different things. So whether it's about masks or vaccines or political decisions or parties or elections, they ha- these crises have not been occasions for pulling together. They've been occasions for pulling apart. Now, Glenn, you've come across the survey statistics and you know the there's a saying in the UK, I imagine it's in the US as well, there are lies, damn lies and statistics. And <laughs> I wonder if there were... I wonder if there were any moments where you thought, really? Is that Mm. really what people are saying? Because, of course, people sometimes are not good perceivers of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Craig Groeschel talks about the church leader that judges themselves as being good at something when the congregation with asked the same question actually gave a much lower rating. So um, I just wonder if there are any uh, kind of really moments for you as you were looking at the survey work. There were, I love, I love that quote, Andy, and there were a couple of those moments. I mean, one was even in this subject of credibility, when pastors were asked to gauge how many of their own people, for example, view them as a trustworthy source of wisdom, uh, they gave a really, really high number. I mean, like the majority of the people, 100%, whatever. And and then when you ask the people that, it's it's lower. So it's- there's... That's one example. But the, the other one where I, I didn't know on the other side of it, but I only knew their perception of it was how pastors said their marriage was doing or their family was doing. I think that's the stuff that I think, really? That many people think that they're doing fine or doing well in their marriage. And I wanted to say, boy, I wish we had a way to ask their spouses to see if the answers would be the same or their children. And of course that you, you can't, you know, survey kids and all that in, in a proper responsible way. But, but those were the, the moments where I think I know anecdotally, and I know from my conversations with other pastors, um, their home life has taken a toll. Uh, when they're stressed, their 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 presence in their house is an anxious presence. I wrote the chapter on relationships. And by the way, the four challenges, I divided the eight challenges into four for the pastor and four for the church. And the four for the pastor are the challenge of vocation. What are we called to do, which we've already touched on? The challenge of spirituality. How is our own life with God renewed? The challenge of relationships and then the challenge of credibility. And on that chapter on relationships, I decided to approach it assuming that their perception of how they're doing in their relationships is actually, uh, they're, they're not seeing them. They're seeing themselves in a more rosy light than probably things actually are. So your book includes a, a section stressing the importance of, of meaningful relationships. And you were, mm-hmm. you were very candid about a, a course that you went on and, and needing yeah. to, to name, I think, some of your closer relationships. Yeah. So what would you say to those for whom that is a challenge, who perhaps have grown up with a perception that you shouldn't be making re- good relationships with your yeah. parishioners, to use that language. Yeah, well, there's there's a couple of challenges about relationships and pastoral work. Um, n- number one, or, or I, and I think this applies to Christian leaders in, in any sphere, really, uh, and that is, as a leader, as a Christian, you're trying to be relational to people. And so there's this kind of illusion of intimacy because you're relational. Um, you're, you're caring for people. 
even if you're a Christian who's leading in the business world, chances are you don't just start the meeting and get down to business. Chances are you take time to find out how people are doing, how their home life is, how they're, you know, so there's an element of care and relationality to our leadership, but there's an illusion to that because that can make it seem that you're actually friends uh, in, in a pure way with these, with, with these people. And it's not quite true. And the reason it's not quite true is because there's a power differential there. So I, I would, I like to call these relationships asymmetrical. They're asymmetrical relationships. They're not, they're not actually equal in, in, in power um, dynamics. And then secondly, not, not only are they asymmetrical, but they're non-reciprocal. If you're in leadership of any kind, you are always going to be the majority of the time. You're the initiator. You're the ones inviting. You're the ones convening. You're the ones uh, uh, creating an event or a hosting a dinner or whatever the case might be. When you walk in the room, the room changes. And because of that, most of our relationships and friendships are asymmetrical and non-reciprocal. They may not ask you in the same way that you ask them. That's not to say you can't have friends in the workplace or you can't have friends on your staff or you can't have friends in the church. You do. It's just that those there are limitations to those friendships. And so what, what pastors and leaders need to do is find friendships that really are symmetrical and reciprocal. Find friendships. And oftentimes these are friendships that have spanned the, the, the you know, the ages, the decades, maybe, you know, uh, you say, oh, these people knew me before I was CEO or before I was pastor or whatever the case might be. Uh, those are the friendships that you really want to pay attention to and steward and cultivate because they they matter. And then I I think it's it's just great to have friendships with people who are in a similar office but maybe a different context. So if you're a pastor. It's great to have a Zoom group with other pastors. I have a Zoom group now with pastors that are around the country. And every month we get on Zoom and we talk through kind of our joys and our challenges, things that I could we could never talk about in our own uh, context. So we got to have those those peers. And I think one of so I've, I've mentioned this illusion of intimacy, but maybe another dimension that is particular to pastors is we kind of think we don't deserve to have a genuine friendship. So we think that all of our life must be filled up with self-giving, sacrificial sort of time. And, and I think if we look closely at the New Testament, for Paul, for example, the one who said, my life is being poured out like a drink offering, even for Paul, uh, there were friendships that were genuine relationships. He writes about these people in his letters who were a strength to him that God used uh, to be a source of comfort and encouragement for him. And, and I, the myth of the superhero pastor or the superhero leader is a myth that I really hope dies soon so that we can say, you know what, we don't, we can't do this alone. We need genuine relationships and friendships around us. And you, you called, called it the, the Taft group, T-A-F-T? Did yeah. I <laughs> Thursdays are for thinking. Yes. Yeah, it's a little group of friends uh, in town that we'll read together and, and share with one another and all of that. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, maybe we could move on. We've looked at pastors, but we need to look at the wider church, which is the second half yeah. of the book particularly looks at and the priorities for the local church. And I was fascinated by uh, some of the surveys there and mm -hmm. the different emphases that different traditions put upon the purpose of the church. And there was uh, mission, uh, formation, encounter. Yeah. Uh, could you perhaps speak to those three different kinds and maybe the sense that you have in your church where you, you're based in Colorado Springs, what is yeah. your emphasis? Uh, so the premise here, Andy, is that whether we realize it or not, there's a subconscious paradigm that we're operating out of when we approach the gathering of the church, the church service, if you'd like. 
And one paradigm that we operate out of is the assumption or the presupposition that the church gathers together in order to encounter God. We're here to meet God. That's why we're here. And then the other one is the paradigm of formation, where we say, well, we gather so that the liturgy or the scriptures or the preaching will form us as the people of God. And then the other one says, no, 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 we gather so that we can reach people. This is, this is the primary evangelism context um, for the church, and we want people to come. Now, what is true about all three is that all three are biblical. All three can be found in the scriptures. And all three are animated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to do all three of those things in the life of the church. And I think you see all three in the book of Acts. But I think what happens is we might tend to emphasize one to the exclusion or to the, the diminishment of the other two. And when we do that, we sort of distort things. And so if you overemphasize mission, everything is skewed towards the guest or the unchurched or the unbeliever. To the point that, that people feel like, why did I come today? Am I just part of the sales and marketing team? Is that what my role is? You know, If you overemphasize encounter, it can feel like you're trying to create an experience every time. And, and, and people are sort of meant to have goosebumps, so to feel something every week. Uh, if you overemphasize formation, it, it might feel a little bit uh, heady. It might feel a little co uh, you know, cognitive, where we just, we're supposed to learn something today. Um, and so, but I don't think, having said all that, I don't think the goal is to, um, to, to find a perfect balance between all three. I think what we're doing is we're discerning context and community. Um, what, and what I mean by that is, so our church, I think for many, many years, we lean towards the mission a paradigm of this. In fact, we used to have a mantra at New Life where we said, we need to make it hard for people to go to hell from Colorado Springs. Yeah. It's a funny, it's a funny phrase, right? But, but the idea was, you know, this is our, our, our job. Well, that's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but we realized we were under, uh, we didn't have enough room for formation in particular. And so over the last 10 or 12 years, we began to think about how can we structure our worship services in such a way, or maybe our sermon series. So we're doing books of the Bible. We do weekly communion. We've uh, introduced our non-denominational evangelical church to uh, basic contours of the Christian calendar, the church year, you know, so they will understand, oh, what does it mean to uh, enter into the season of Lent or the, whatever it might be. So those, those are things that have helped. But then, you know, we go four or five years of that and we recognize, hang on a minute, that we're a charismatic church as well. And some people, uh, boy, maybe they've forgotten about the gifts of the spirit or about uh, an encounter in the presence of God. So we said, well, how do we introduce that? And so we created a, a first Wednesday of every month service where that's a moment where we can we can kind of be a little more unscripted and have it be a, a time to, to linger in the presence of God. So and that might mean if you're a church leader, that might mean thinking about the staff and the leaders that you have and to say, gosh, do we all skew in the same direction? It might also make you think about different times of the church year. It might also make you think about different segments of the ministries of the church. Maybe if you run Alpha, you're like, well, that's where we're all in with the mission paradigm. But over here, we're going to be more, you know, and, and there might be different areas of the church that lean in different ways. But just to have that conversation uh, allows you to wrestle properly with the purpose of the church. Glenn, as we close our conversation, one question I need to ask really for those who perhaps listening who are struggling and maybe considering quitting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that you would appreciate might be the right thing to do, 
But yes. what would you yeah. say to them about the kind of things that might indicate that's a good move and what mm. to be cautious about? I, I, I think the first thing I would say to that is that there's always a um, uh, there's a difference between your calling and the particular job that you have. So you, you you can live out your calling in a number of different career options. And I don't want anyone to feel any sense of shame of like if a particular um, job isn't working, that that, that means you can't uh, ever leave. I don't think that's true. But I think it's a bad idea to quit during a season of discouragement and despair. Um, St. Ignatius, back in the day, you know, 1400s, I believe, uh, taught these practices of, of discernment to his followers. And Ignatius said, never make a life-changing decision in a season of desolation. And what he meant by that desolation is that moment where you feel maybe the absence of God or the absence of the love of God, or you're feeling a bit of, you're in the wasteland. The wasteland is not the time to quit. The desert is not the time to quit. Um, it, 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 it could be that those are the moments where you pray for an oasis and you pray for a respite, you pray for uh, quiet waters and green pastures for the good shepherd to lead you to that. And it may be that you revisit it. Maybe the desolation season is a time where you recognize actually there's something unhealthy here about this church, or there's something unhealthy about the way I am leading in this church. And, um, and so you might wait patiently and then there comes a time, you know, maybe six months later or whatever, a year from now, you say, you know what, now is the time to move. And, th and that's all right. But you don't want it to be this knee jerk sort of thing. And then finally, I want to offer just a bit of encouragement, Andy. I think, I think we don't want to quit because we have a short term perspective. Uh, I, I think, I think in America, especially less so in England, because you've got hundreds and hundreds of years of church history here. But I, I think we tend to be short-sighted about the effectiveness of our ministry. And we tend to sort of think, well, if I don't see it now, then what's the point of all of it? And, and we need the long view. We need to be able to take the long view here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection and he talks about you know, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then then we of all people ought to be pitied. You know, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, and all of that. And then he says, but but you know what? Jesus has been raised from the dead. And because he's been raised from the dead, and he finishes by saying, um, you can be steadfast, immovable, um, always doing what, what what is right, knowing that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain, always excelling in the work of the Lord, uh, because you know that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. And I think all of us are interim pastors. Uh, one of the most beautiful things I've seen in churches in England here, Andy, is the plaque on the back wall of Church of England churches that gives you the list of the vicars. You know, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think, look, look at that. We're taking our, our place in a long line of history and we got to trust that Jesus has been the head of the church long before us, and Jesus will be the head of the church long after we're gone. And so we just trust that our labor in the Lord will not be in vain. Glenn, that's a wonderful place to finish. Thank you so much for uh, allowing us just a glimpse, really, of the many themes that you uncover in your book. So the book is The Resilient uh, Pastor Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. Uh, it's by Glenn Packiam, P-A-C-K-I-A-M. It's published by... Who's the Baker, Baker, yeah, it's published by Baker Books in, in the States. And I believe the paperback is releases March 2nd here in the UK and the hardcover uh, by the end of March. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for your insights and uh, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Andy. That was my conversation with Glenn Packiam, who's the author of The Resilient Pastor, 
leading your church in a rapidly changing world. Our conversation ranged over many topics, and I hope it was an encouragement to you, perhaps if you're feeling as a pastor that some of the challenges are overwhelming you, you take heed to Glenn's encouraging words there at the end. It may be that God is leading you on, but it may be that in the midst of the trial and the struggle, he has things to teach you and ways forward that perhaps he look, he's looking to reveal to you. This is Andy Peck, thanking you for your company and looking forward to next time. Bye for now. The Leadership Show with Andy Peck. To get in touch, email andy.peck at premier.org.uk.